you have your Bible, please turn to the Gospel according to Luke. We're nearing the end. In Luke chapter 23, we'll be looking today at verses 13 through 25. Luke 23, 13 to 25. About 24 years ago, an 18-year-old young woman in Monroeville, Alabama, was murdered. She was the kind of girl that was pretty popular, well-known in the small town. She worked at the cleaners there, and she was at her job one morning, on a quiet morning, when she was killed. She was murdered. And of course, everyone's outraged. Everyone wants to know who did this. This person must pay. But they couldn't find any leads for months. There's nothing. And then one day, the case seemingly got a break. Somebody said, I was with Walter McMillan, and he did it. I was with him in the car. And he went in and killed her and came back out and I drove away. I didn't know what was going on, but he did it. And on the basis of that testimony, Walter McMillan was convicted and then sentenced to death. And he spent six years on death row. He was placed on death row even before his trial. Because they thought, this is a really bad one. It's definitely him. We need to not let him get away, not let anything go wrong. He is the guy. But it's clear from the actual evidence and became clear from the evidence that finally was allowed to be presented years later through the work of Brian Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative that Walter McMillan did not commit that crime. He wasn't there. There were multiple witnesses from the beginning that he was miles away from Monroeville all day that day. But all those black witnesses were ignored while a white man's testimony, a white man who lived a life of lying, of stealing, of cheating, and was given a deal, actually, for giving that testimony. Said, you can avoid life in prison if you'll give us something on this guy. That man was believed. And even years later, as it was being relitigated, the district attorney, the, the new one, was saying, oh, I'm sure that this guy did it. And I'm sure that that guy, well, he's lying now saying what he's saying about his testimony. What was revealed there ultimately is that there was no care for justice just for something that seemed like justice. We can't have a murderer going around our town, so we're going to find one and make him the murderer. It was better to convict and execute someone even if he was actually innocent than to have no arrest, right? You're making the family feel better, the parents of this young woman who was killed. But it was all a lie. Walter McMillan would spend six years on death row before he was finally 
exonerated, finally declared not guilty and set free. And as, as we listened, Steph and I listened to the audiobook version of Just Mercy this summer, we're just feeling lots of feelings, right? Like how can you condemn someone to death when you know they're innocent? Like the people who were getting that done, maybe the jury didn't know because evidence was suppressed and they're just presented, here's this case. Here's the guy who says he was with them. Here's another guy who says, yeah, he saw his truck come into town that day and it was a low rider, even though it wasn't a low rider until the next spring after the murder was convicted. It's just so much didn't add up. But the prosecution had to have it done. The sheriff had to have a win. And that sheriff was actually in office. So the, the original murder is 1986. That sheriff retired last year. So we go, 1986, a long time ago. The sheriff who was part of that was like, he definitely did it. He's the worst kind of person. Retired in 2019. So this is real. This is up to today. How can you condemn someone to death when you know they're innocent? Our hearts just cry out for the right thing to be done. And of course, you kind of know where this is going if you've been tracking with us in the sermon series through the gospel according to Luke. Jesus is still on trial in today's text. He's already been betrayed, arrested, denied, mocked, and now he's endured a sham religious trial. He stood in front of two different secular authorities, Pilate, then Herod, and now he's back in front of Pilate for the verdict. And I know we're used to the story But if we can pretend for a minute, let's not be used to the story. Let's feel what is happening here. Luke 23, 13 to 25. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray. Oh, Father, our hearts 
recoil at the injustice recorded here. At a crowd prevailing by their voices in the sinless Son of God going to death and judgment that he did not deserve. But we thank you, Father, that Jesus was not just delivered over to their will that day. It was indeed your will for him to be crushed so that we could go free. Would you help us as we consider this text together, this moment in time from Jesus' life? Would you help us to see what you want us to see? To feel what you want us to feel? And then would you help us to act the way that you want us to act? Would you come and do this good work in us, for us, and through us today, ultimately for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As Eric noted last week, Pilate had a tenuous relationship with the truth. That primarily comes out in John's gospel, but it's also pretty clear here, right? He's trying and trying and trying. He says he's desiring to release Jesus. He's talking to them again. You know, he doesn't just give in the first time. But he mainly cared about power. He didn't care about truth, justice, or the American way. And for those of you who weren't around in the 80s, I'm really sorry. But either way, Pilate does not perceive Jesus as a threat. So he planned to punish and release him. He says that a couple of times in this text. But the text also makes clear that Pilate knew absolutely that Jesus was not guilty. He knew he was not guilty. He's asking them, why? What evil has he done? I haven't found him guilty of any of the charges that you've brought against me. You've said all these things. I haven't found any of them to be true. He makes that clear in verses 13 to 16, in verse 20, and then verse 22, which makes it all the more shocking if we didn't know this story already. If you're just watching the movie and you don't know, right? It's like, here's the trial. Well, I mean, he said he's innocent. It's, it's got to go his way. It's got to go Jesus' way, doesn't it? That's the right thing. And then, all of a sudden, it doesn't. Pilate's clear awareness of Jesus' innocence makes it all the more shocking when he condemns Jesus to the death of the cross just because everyone else says that that's what should happen. But the crowd will accept nothing less than Jesus' death by crucifixion. This all feels so wrong, and it is, but it's not only the injustice that we're supposed to feel and see when we consider this story, it's not just all oh, those people, all oh, Pilate, that crowd, those guys. Man, if I had been there. Yeah? Tell me about that. It's not just the injustice that we recoil at and go, oh, they shouldn't have done that. We certainly wouldn't do that. That's how we tend to be today. We look at injustices of the past and say, if I had been there, I would have done the right thing. 
but then we participate in our own in this day, demonstrating that we probably wouldn't have been quite as righteous as we hope that we would be. So it's not just the injustice that we're supposed to see and feel. It's our part in it. Yes, Jesus is the innocent, silent sufferer, but who are we in the story? We might tend to want to put ourselves in, in Jesus' spot. You know, well, I mean, I'm not totally innocent, but yeah, there's people who are out to get me because I'm siding with him. And we are called in 1 Peter to follow him in the way that he suffered. If we are suffering for being a Christian, we are called to follow him. This is the end of 1 Peter 2, that when he reviled, he didn't revile again. That's what set him apart. That's what should set us apart. We don't have to fight back the way the world fights back. We can suffer with Jesus who suffered for us. And that is certainly an application, but it cannot be the only application. We cannot simply put ourselves in the innocent sufferer, I guess I got to do it like Jesus. As we sang earlier, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. So for the rest of our time together this morning, I want basically to lead us in some meditations on Pilate, on the crowd, and then on Jesus, Barabbas, and us. So as we consider Pilate, let's consider Pilate and justice. As followers of Jesus, by God's grace, we must do what is right even when everyone else tells us it is wrong. Pilate, he knew what was right. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus should be set free, but he did what he knew was wrong. Pilate knew the right thing to do. He seemed ready to do the right thing, and then he didn't. Why? Because enough people said that's what should happen. He gave in to their demands. He took the opinion poll and it was decisive. He said, okay, I know what I am supposed to do. And he gave them what they wanted. Pilate, a true politician. You go, I know politicians like that. Yep. Pilate, a true politician, cares not for truth, but for power. By God's grace, we want to be and to raise a generation of believers in Jesus who will stick with him, even if the whole world says we must do otherwise. When the world says what you believe about this Jesus guy is too exclusive, you're condemning everyone else to hell. And we can quibble with how they're saying that, say we're not condemning anyone to hell, but we also say yes, he is the only Savior. He is the only way. And yes, we believe him. We take him at his word and we trust him. And even if the whole world says you can't do that, by God's grace, we must stand with Jesus. We must stick with Jesus. But we'll feel pressure in different ways and on different issues. My point isn't to bring up all the different issues. You can think of some of the ones you know you're facing in your own work. Whether it's corporate America and your corporate culture there, on your own block, 
in your neighborhood. And as we face that pressure, we might be tempted to take Pilate's way out. Pilate tried to declare himself not guilty of Jesus' blood. We learn this especially from Matthew 27. Where he washed his hands. you remember that? He washes his hands saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. I didn't do this. But the thing is, he had the responsibility to do it. He says, I didn't do this. I'm just letting you do what you want. But the thing is, he's in charge. He can wash his hands all he wants. But he can never wash off the stain of what he had done. He was still responsible. It was clearly his decision. And the decisions we make are ours no matter how much we would like to blame someone else. Haven't we all done this? Well, they told me that. Well, and they said this would happen if I didn't. It's like, oh, okay, that, that totally made it right then. Great. Fantastic. Don't worry about it. No. Even if we try to wash our hands and say, I didn't really do that. It's not really my fault. There's always a reason that someone else did it. Someone else was the problem. Maybe, kids, you can make those kinds of excuses to your parents. Does that ever happen? Right? She started it. You guys would never say that. Nah. And none of you guys out there either. And we tend to do the same thing as adults, right? I mean, here's Pilate. He's not a kid. Saying, well, they they yelled at me, and so I had to. But that's what his excuse sounds like. It sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? But we tend to make those excuses to our parents, to each other. But when we stand before the Son of God, excuses like that will melt away. You'll be ready to make your defense and you'll see his eyes and you will make no defense. So let us live in the presence of that one who gave his life for us. We will be in his presence by his grace one day, but we live before him even now. And as we see him for who he is, then we are strengthened to stick with him in the face of all opposition. So Pilate's a negative example. But he gives in. Let us not just jump on board with what seems fashionable. Under Christ and with the help of the Holy Spirit, let us pursue true justice. Not rushing to judgment, but let us not rush ahead with what we know is right. Well, I know it has to be this way. That was part of what happened in that murder case in the 80s. I know it has to be this guy. It's like, well, how do you know that? Why do you know it? I just know it. It's like, That's not enough. It's not supposed to be enough in our courts of law. It certainly won't be enough before Christ. We must, as followers of Jesus, not defend what is wrong or condemn what is right. And so a hallmark of our response should be restraint, patience. Our restraint, our patience, our trust in the Lord for vindication should set us apart from the world. We should pursue what is right, but we pursue it as followers of Jesus.
which leads us to the crowd. The crowd and its idolatry. Yes, the crowd wins the day, right? He is condemned. Jesus is crucified, even though he's innocent, because they got together and they made their voices heard. Just because people get together and make their voices heard does not mean they are right. They may be pursuing idolatry, and that's what was happening here. And so what we want to think about as we think of the crowd is the crowd and idolatry, that idols cannot replace Jesus. And you go, I'm not an idolater. And if you'd ask them that day, I'm not an idolater. What are we even talking about? We just got to get rid of this guy who's a real problem. And we might say today, especially kids are like, yeah, I definitely don't have any statues in my room that I'm bowing down to and praying to. Well, that's wonderful. I'm very happy for you. But what is idolatry? It's trying to replace God with something else, with anything else. That who he says he is, we say, oh, i got to fill that up with something else. And it's easy for us, right, to look at the ways that people out there do it. Oh, they're, they're idolaters on that, and boy, they're, oh, they're all wrong over there. But what about in here? What about us? Because we might look at this crowd and go, like, they chose Barabbas over Jesus? Who is he? He's, he's a guy who leads a rebellion. He's a murderer. How could they choose an insurrectionist and a murderer over Jesus, the sinless Son of God? But isn't this what we do? We reject Jesus and his way for people and for things that will never satisfy. And the things we want instead of Jesus, they steal and destroy, just like Barabbas. Maybe it's not as obvious, but when we want something more than we should, we will always be disappointed. And we are committing in that moment idolatry, saying, Jesus, I know you've said you're enough, but in this, just in this instance, you're not. I really have to have this. I really need this. But the thing is, your idols can never bear the weight that you put on them. They weren't made for that. They cannot sustain it. And eventually, they will turn on you. We must not, like the crowd, be idolaters, saying, yeah, we could have Jesus, but give us this other guy instead. We'll take something else. Which leads us to thinking about there is a switch. There is a trading places. So as we think about Jesus and what's happening to him here, as we think about Barabbas, not just an object of the crowd's desire, this text teaches us that Jesus is our substitute. And this is the heart of the gospel. Jesus is the innocent, silent sufferer for us. But who's Barabbas? And who are we when we think about us being Barabbas? You know, I've never started an insurrection and I'm not a murderer. Okay. But Barabbas actually becomes a way that we can understand the gospel. Barabbas, what happens to him at the end of this story? He goes free. He's released. He is set free. 
And it's not one of those like cheap ones where like we set you free and then we're just going to capture you again in a minute and that made everyone happy. He's set free. He's set free though he doesn't deserve it. And Jesus, who was innocent, is condemned in his place. So those three crosses, Jesus shouldn't have been on those, right? Barabbas should have been up there with those other two, but he wasn't. Jesus literally took the place of Barabbas. But for us, it's even better. We're not just set free for the moment. We're not just set free from immediate judgment. We, by God's grace, have been set free forever. We are free already from sin's penalty. Because Jesus bore the wrath of God for us, we will never face it, not even for a minute. That is good news. We will never face his wrath. We are already free from sin's penalty. We are increasingly, by God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit, being freed from sin's power. And one day, we will be set free from its very presence. We'll never face God's wrath because Jesus took our place. Do you feel how precious this is? That, if you are in Christ, that is your story. We might think of all sorts of other things that are our story. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this other thing. I think about this, I identify this way. Whatever your story, whatever your political persuasion, whatever your musical tastes, whatever your sports teams, all those things are going to fade. All those things are going to go away. But who we are in Christ will last forever. And that is our story. He is our hope. He is our life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took what we deserved. He took all the Father's wrath on him. And we get what he deserves. We are now called sons and daughters. We belong to the king. First Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we, due to our idolatry, sin, our unjust words and actions, we deserve God's wrath. Our problem is not just lack of education. That's one of the fallacies, one of the many fallacies going around these days. If we could just let people know what's really true, then everything would be fine. Right? And we see that in our political process on both sides. Everyone tends to think, if everyone else knew what I know, 
they would do what I do. But as followers of Jesus, we know that that's silly. We know it doesn't work. And it's why there's so much deep disillusionment on both sides, knowing how many people voted for the other side. How can people do that? If they just knew, but the thing is, it's not if they just knew, right? We don't always act on what we know. It's not just about knowing. Pilate knew the right thing to do. It's not just knowing that Jesus is innocent. That didn't do Jesus any good here, right? Pilate knew exactly what the right thing to do was. But when he faced a little pressure, he revealed that he didn't care enough to do the right thing. Pilate didn't need his mind changed. He knew the right thing to do. He needed his heart changed. And isn't that us? Even when we know what is right, we don't do it. Even when we know something is wrong, we do it anyway. And that's where we must come back over and over again to the good news of the gospel. That as Paul opened us up with from Romans 5. It was while we were still weak that Christ died for the ungodly. Our story is not, we were pretty good and on the right way and had most of the right positions and we just needed a little tweak and that got us over the edge. Thank you, Jesus. No, that is not our story. We were lost. We were dead. We have been found. We have been made alive. We who were insurrectionists, rebels against the crown, are now Sons and daughters by God's grace. For those who are here and not yet trusting in Jesus, maybe you've been around the things of Jesus, you know lots of facts about Jesus, kind of like Pilate knows a lot of facts about Jesus. It's not so much that you need your mind changed. You might even say, I believe that he's God. I believe that he's Lord over all. I even believe I'm going to stand before him one day. But deep down, you still think, like, I got this. I can do this. Do you see your sins for what they are against a holy God whose wrath you will face if you don't turn from your sins and trust in the sacrificial death and resurrection of the Savior in our place? Do you see your sins as a reason that Jesus was nailed to the cross? Well, if you're in that spot, you can know Jesus' forgiveness as you turn from your sins and trust in him. You can be brought back into right relationship with God. This is truly good news and an incredible exchange. Jesus takes God's wrath, what we deserve, so that we will never have to face it. Instead, we're God's children, beloved sons and daughters, who will reign with Christ forever. And so as his children now, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, as his children, even now, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, let us keep trusting in Christ. Let us look to Christ alone for our life, for our security, for our hope and let us worship Christ who is certainly worthy and let us thank him day by day for what he has done for us and let us live by his grace in obedience to Christ for his glory and for the good of our neighbor and let us look for Christ's coming 
when he will right all wrongs and will take us home to be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth where true righteousness dwells. Before we pray and go to communion, I want to read the text of an old hymn written by John Newton so a few hundred years ago called He Died for Me. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled. My heart is filled to think he died for me. Let's pray. Oh, God, thank you that you have loved us like this. That we who were your enemies have been made friends, and not only friends, but family. Heirs with Christ of a new heavens and a new earth where everything is right and nothing is wrong. Will you help us with the fears that we face, with the temptations that we face, with the pressures that we feel? Would you help us to remember that this is our story? That though we should be condemned... For Christ's death, we are freely forgiven by that same Christ. And through that death, that Father, you were superintending over all of it, working out exactly what you wanted to happen to deliver your people, to deliver us. We stand in awe today. Would you help our hearts to be thrilled, our souls to be filled Because we know that Christ died for us and that even now he lives for us and that he is coming for us. And would that truth hold us in whatever uncertainty we face, whether personally, as a family, as a state, as a nation. Would you hold us by your truth? Spirit, would you lead us that way? Would you help us? And would you help us to depend on you, to cry out to you for help? And would you be the helper that Jesus promised you would be as we seek to fix our eyes on him until he comes again? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.